Hi folks, this is Jack Spierka with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tougher, even if they don't. Today is October the 25th, 2019. This is episode 2538 of the Survival Podcast. What I got for you today is Expert Council Q&A show for 102419. Here's who I got on the Expert Council lined up for you today. Dealing with smut grass, the permaculture away from Jeff Lawton. A lot of background noise in this call from Jeff Lawton. Sounds like he's at an airport or a construction site or something, but that Jeff's on the road. He's dedicated. He gets a question. He answers it, so we'll have to power through that one together. Uh, Derek Bonpietro is going to talk about eco-diesel engines, the newer ones, the smaller eco-diesel engines. Ben Falk's going to talk about the timing of cutting timber and some stuff on alternative heating. Ben knows a lot about heating because if you don't heat things in... Vermont, you freeze to death. Um, Doc Moans is going to talk about knowing when to and when not to close up a wound. Gary Collins is going to talk about what he calls the three-legged stool of the simple life. Nicole Sauce is going to talk about getting started making cheese. And I'm just going to have a short segment today on cleaning various game birds. We're going to get to all of that right away. I want to start out with the quote of the day today. Um, this is by Heraclitus, and it is, Man is most nearly himself when he achieves the seriousness of a child at play. I think that we can get too serious, and I think that's what this quote is really all about. And I think that there is some incredible wisdom in the play of childhood. I think that as we age, and we become more logical and more reasoning and less impulse-driven, that our wisdom ha helps to temper what would otherwise be stupid behavior. But, you know, there's the old saying about throwing the baby out with the bathwater. And I think a lot of us, we do that in a lot of different ways in our life. And one is that we forget to enjoy ourselves. We forget to play. And we forget that we are natural beings. See, this is what this really comes down to for me. It bothers me so much that our world has shifted to a point today where people not only believe what they're being taught, that humans are here and nature's over there that wilderness and humans don't go together, that humans are unnatural. And, and when we look at ecosystems, humans are not a natural part of the ecosystem. Well, then how the hell did we get here? I mean, just to be blunt, we evolved on this planet, no matter what you believe about religion, whether you believe God created us out of the dust or whether you believe that we evolved from some sort of primate lineage, And anything in between. We exist on this planet. We are as native to planet Earth as any other living thing. We're also the species that has the most propensity to do damage. But it doesn't mean that that's our natural state. And play is one of our natural states. And, you know, people that spend a lot of time playing don't have a lot of time to go fighting with others. And if you look at hunter-gatherer societies... You might not look at it as childlike play, but there's a lot of play in their lives. That's because they're being naturally what they are. Human beings are not in a natural state when they're shooting guns at each other. Human beings are not in a natural state when they're launching airstrikes at each other. Human beings are not in a natural state when we're plowing the earth into oblivion to grow food that would grow happily for us if we would use natural systems as they were designed. Human beings are not in a natural state when they're sitting on a concrete uh, trail 
in a mobile metal coffin going back and forth to work every day to pay for a house they barely live in. Human beings are not in a natural state when they're overfed horrible food for their bodies and existing with type 2 diabetes. Human beings are in a natural state when they accept their natural nature and behave like a child at play, along with the temperance and logic and reason that comes with growing a little bit older. Just a good way to kick off the day. With that, let's go ahead and dig on into it. We're going to start out with that kind of rough call from Jeff Lawton. I apologize for the background noise, but uh, again, if we want Jeff, who is probably one of the busiest people in the world of permaculture, uh, globe-trotting all over the place to help people and design systems all over the world, I think he's coming to us today here from Hawaii. Uh, if we want him to be able to call in, we're going to get something like this, and I think it's worth it. Jeff, let's talk about dealing with something called smut grass. Hi, this is Jeff Lawton here, coming to you from Hawaii, of all places. I'm on my way to Florida, and then I'm going through to uh, Jordan. But anyway, answering a question here about smut grass, which is also in Tampa Bay, Florida, um, and an inundation of about one and a half to two acres, um, and how to deal with it. Recommendations by everybody is herbicide. Well, that isn't what I recommend. Um, I've dealt with some of the most aggressive grasses in Australia um, in our property um, without herbicide and um, all we've done is we've grazed um, with animals, usually cows, doesn't matter what you graze with and then every now and again slash as well after grazing if you can but it doesn't matter if you don't, just graze and sell graze. Don't just keep the animals on the grasses that you want to get rid of. Get the animals onto the area, intensely graze, and then move. Intensely graze and move. So we have a return rate of about 30 days in summer, 50 days in winter, and we just keep our eye on the, on, on the pasture, let the animals eat everything down they can so there's almost nothing left at all, then move them off, let it rest, let it come back, just before it's seeding again, bring the animals back, keep repeating that process so you're cell grazing with attention doesn't matter if you don't get it perfectly right but anyway what happens is you get good imprinting by the animals not damage they graze everything off they manure everything and then you you move move them off and repeat the process until some of the most aggressive grasses in the world just disappear you've got to do it carefully you've got to watch what's happening be in attention and be prepared to move the animals. So you get an extra benefit there of it and, and, and of improving the pasture. You know you're improving the pasture because the aggressive plants that you want to get rid of leave and you get better diversity of plants coming in. So you get a better quality pasture from doing this properly. Uh, and then you can then you can go into more productive management and get better production from your animals. So it, it's the same everywhere. Um, it works perfectly well as long as you're in attention. And uh, that's what I always recommend. Now, if you don't want to do it with animals, you are going to have to slash the ground, cut it, bush hog it, whatever you want to call it. You're going to cut the grasses low and then um, spread some manures, uh, spread some organic fertilizer. Manure will do. It doesn't have to be compost. Better if it is, but it doesn't matter if it isn't. Just spread some manures. Let the grasses flush before they seed. Cut again. Spread your manures or your compost and just repeat until you get a diminished grasses that you don't want and good grasses coming in diversity. It doesn't take long before you've got a really good pasture and all the annoying uh, grasses have gone. 
the reason they don't come back is you've got an improved fertility, you've got to improve microorganisms in the soil, the, the soil ecosystem is improved, the animals have improved the ground with, with imprinting, not sheet compaction. Imprinting is beneficial to the soils because nutrient falls into the imprints um, and the manures fall into the imprints and there's beneficial micro um, zones in each imprint. So there you go. Sorry about the no noise, but I'm in um, Waikiki Beach having a bit of a... a R&R on my way through to Florida, got a lot of work ahead, and there's a lot of background noise, but anyway, hopefully you can hear me. Next up, we have a segment by Derek Bonpietro. This specifically applies to a van with some towing requirements, but these newer, uh, smaller, yet fairly powerful, what they call eco-diesels. Derek, what are your thoughts on these things? Hey, TSP listeners, this is Derek from AffordableDCGenerators.com. I've got one from Chris in Cincinnati. What do you think of the durability of the new, smaller eco-diesel engines, particularly the 3.2 Power Stroke or the 2.8 Duramax? Background, I'm looking at getting a 12- or 15-passenger van that will be a daily drive to haul my family, but also need it to have the capability to haul a three to 4,000-pound bug-out trailer that my family uses for camping approximately 2,000 miles a year. I'm mainly looking at the Ford Transit and Chevy Express. Any thoughts about these engines would be appreciated. Well, Chris, let's dig into both of these vehicles. I'm going to kind of give you some personal insight and then some technical insight on both of those diesel options. So let's dig in. Now, the Transit van is based on an F-150 platform. So underneath, it's basically a half-ton vehicle. And even though you can get this in a heavy-duty version and a dually version, At the core, it's kind of still based on a half ton, where the Chevy Express, you can get a 1,500, 2,500, 3,500. So you've got a lot more options as far as vehicle capacities and engine options. Now, three to 4,000 pound trailer can definitely be towed by a half ton, although a three-quarter or one ton is obviously going to handle it better with a little less wear and tear. But overall, that's still half ton arena. But the fact that you're looking for a 12 or 15 passenger vehicle lends me to believe that you're going to probably load this up with people and cargo and then put a trailer on the back. So I'm guessing that you're probably going to be reaching above and beyond what a half-ton vehicle can do. And I think the half-ton Transit is probably a little light for what you're looking for. So I personally think that the Chevy Express in a 2500 or 3500 variant is going to be a better suit for you, in my opinion. But I think overall both of those vehicles could probably get the job done. Now, let's go back a little in history to talk about where the diesel market in America is going. So back in 07 to about 2010, the EPA started to put a stranglehold on diesel emissions. Thanks, Obama. And so basically all of these engines and various weight classes all the way into off-road equipment and generators and anything like that are going to have particulate diesel traps, big catalytic converters. If you look underneath these vehicles, they're the size of a coffee table. And so this keeps the particulate soot from going into the, uh, into the atmosphere from the exhaust. It's also going to have urea injection, DEF fluid, diesel exhaust fluid. And so all these systems are in place to keep the vehicle from visibly polluting and also to be emissions compliant. So this means that you're going to have to put DEF fluid in the vehicle so that way you can drive it. So you're not only paying a premium $3 roughly a gallon for this diesel fuel, but you've got to put the DEF, which could cost anywhere from $2 a gallon at a truck stop all the way up to like $10 a gallon, depending on where you're buying it. And usually you use about 2% DEF. So this could be like one gallon of DEF per every, 
50 gallons of diesel fuel really depends on the manufacturer, but that's general ballpark. So you got to factor this in. Is it worth it? And then you're going to have to pay the premium for the engine. So the engine might be a few thousand dollars of a premium, but a lot of these manufacturers will not option the diesel at a base model vehicle. So you have to get a premium level vehicle as far as the trim and then spend the additional money to get the diesel option. Now, they are putting out some serious power for their size, and they're getting some serious fuel economy. And I got Jack on my shoulder saying, Excel spreadsheet, cost of the vehicle, how long are you going to have it, how many miles, and then what's the fuel cost going to be? And then we got to throw in the maintenance because you've got the additional fluid and then the wear and tear. And so, yeah, the diesel engine is robust and can go hundreds of thousands of miles, but now you've got all this complex emission stuff that just chokes it on top of it, and there's plenty of horror stories online. Personally, I'd stay away from that garbage. I don't think they're worth it. I think you're better off just paying the penalty of the fuel economy and going with a plain chain gas engine. Now, if we're looking at the Ford Transit, and this is a passenger variant van, they're limited to 4,600 pounds of towing capability in that variant. So that means you're right on the edge of what you need and also just looking at some of the pricing on it, we're talking the absolute lowest model possible to get that diesel engine. I'm looking at $43,000. It's a long wheelbase, low roof profile, XL trim, just about as bare bones as you can get with the 3.2 option, 43565 That's a lot of coin for a brand new van. Now, the 2500 regular wheelbase V6 which is pretty much the lowest model you can get in a heavy-duty variant, Chevy Express, we're looking at up to 6,700 pounds of trailering capacity. So obviously, that's a big step up. I personally, on the Chevy side, I believe the 6-liter has really been always and still will probably be just the die-hard workhorse. And even though it gets slightly less fuel economy, is just overall a pretty simple engine and just gets the job done. My work van is a 4.8. Even though that engine is no longer offered, it's, it's a lower output in the van model. And I'm really just unimpressed, and it doesn't get the fuel economy. Uh, I'm getting about 16 and a half, and my old van was a half ton with a 5.3, and it got the same fuel economy and was light years better in drivability. So I think you're better off with the larger V8. Uh, so if you're buying new, I think you got to go drive both of them. Maybe see if you can even hook a trailer up to them to see how they both haul that trailer and make a determination. Spreadsheet does not lie. That's if you're going brand new. I think if you're looking to get into something used, personally, I'd probably be looking at one of those 12 to 15 passenger E350s just because you can pretty much find them used in every type of trim level from the bare bones work truck with a bench seat maybe in the back uh, to a, a school bus model to uh, a fully loaded, like, high trim level, maybe even, like, RV style or, you know, the conversion fan style. And you can get it with a 5.4 or the 6.8. And I think both of those will probably get the job done. I think the V10, obviously, will get worse fuel economy but has better power and serves a purpose if this is going to be a workhorse. But I think you got to drive them. And personally, if you were going used, I'd probably go in that direction because, man, there are just millions of those things driving around still. So get out there and drive them if they're brand new. I would probably steer away from the diesels, just my opinion. The numbers don't lie. They might work better for your application or what you're wanting to spend. But that's personal, and just put them down on paper and be truthful with yourself. They are light years different from the diesel engines of the early 2000s era, like the one Jack has in his Super Duty. Uh, they're just the emissions compliance kills the engines, and they just are troublesome and very expensive long term. So just keep that in mind when we're looking at those.
So that's about all the info I got on these diesel vans. You can always go over to the affordabledcgenerators.com and subscribe to my newsletter and my YouTube channel. But rather than talking about that stuff, I want to play the sucks to be you game. It's been a little bit stormy weather up here in New England and by other standards of tornado country, not anything crazy. But, of course, the power's going out and I'm driving around like crazy trying to help everybody out with their generators and get them up and running. I always, I always hate to be the bearer of bad news. People that weeks ago were looking at their units and saw red lights on and were calling me are up and running and were prepared for the storm, and when the power went out, their generators were serving their purpose. Today's battle was driving around trying to help everybody that was unprepared, not looking ahead of the game, not looking to make sure the unit was running. So the TSP PSA of the day is going to be pull your generator out, make sure it starts, make sure it runs, put a load on it, plug it into the house, do a power outage simulation, and make sure that you're prepared and that you've got some fresh fuel and that your household is in order so that way when this stuff happens, you're good to go. And if you don't have a generator, maybe you should be looking at buying one. And if you don't uh, have the money to buy a full-scale whole house generator or even a big backup generator, you should be looking at an inverter and running it off of your car and looking at all the Stephen Harris audio clips on the Survival Podcast and getting on his website to buy an inverter. Get yourself prepped. Don't be left out in the storm. Take care, guys. Next, we uh, have one. I guess somebody sent it to Ben and said, Hey, man, I asked this about to you about a year ago, and you never gave me an answer. And I guess somebody emailed him directly, because I don't remember this. It's that long ago. But uh, we got a question for Ben Falk on some stuff, some on some alternative heating methodologies here, and another on cutting timber and the timing that goes with cutting timber when it comes to rot resistance. Ben, uh, what's up? Hey, Jack and all. Ben Falk with Whole Systems Design. Uh, question, two different questions about um, rocket stove use for hydronic heat and heating in general, um, and also black locust and cedar and oak and other species being cut at specific times a year for um, rot resistance. Sorry I didn't get to that question. Sometimes I miss Jack's emails. I'm sure he sent it to me. Um, and I didn't see it on my end when you had sent it last year. You said, um, let's start with that first because um, it's easier. Um, th- yes, it does matter. According to mo- any old-timer I know and people who really know about trees and, and wood and forestry, it does seem to matter um, as to when you cut it because essentially you want as as few sugars in the wood as possible and as little moisture in the wood as possible. Those timbers with the least sugar and moisture, in my understanding, are going to last the longest. They're going to swell and shrink the least as well. They're going to be the most stable. Um, Swelling and shrinkage can contribute to rot because they move around more and you get more cracking, more checking. That's, you know, uh, open paths for for um, insects to get in. So the more stable, the less it would moves, the better from every perspective, including avoiding rot. And also just you have less sugar in the wood to attract um, anything that rots it, you know, really want, is attracted to sugar and can feed on sugar. So generally you're going to have the least amount of moisture and sugar up in the wood in the winter and the dormant season a lot of people think on the waning moon or um you know the half moon not at full not at new because that's when you have the least amount of you know there's a lot of non maybe non-scientific views on that that say that agree with that but even just from a 
kind of basic scientific perspective, you have the least amount of um, you know of gravitational pull on moisture up into the trees during that part of the moon cycle. It's when the tides are the least. So think about when you have spring tides is new moon and full moon. That's when they call them spring tides, which are the biggest tides, because gravity, the gravitational pull of the moon is the most on Earth. Well, that affects moisture, you know, in plant tissues as well. We have tides all over the world. You just see them where there's a big enough body of water, but they also happen in, in trees. Um, so that's going to give you the least amount of mo- allow there to be the least amount of moisture. I try to cut around here. People like to cut, um, you know, in the no- ja- January to November, like November to January. I try to do it before February, um, before any sap has risen in the spring. The worst time of year would be like, let's say, when the sap is flowing. You know, when people are making maple sugar, that'd be the worst. Um, or maybe even at leaf out, you know, after that. So I try to do from about now until late January, as things are just getting colder and colder and the days are getting shorter and shorter, um, and the sap has no chance of coming up, and it's a long, cold stretch of weather on the waning moon or towards the new moon is when I try to do it. Um, So... Otherwise, um, heart, heartwood is your best bet as well. Um, now, on the question about um, rocket stoves, so my understanding is that it's hard to get a lot of hot water out of rocket stoves or masonry heaters in general because of the pattern of use and that you're firing them only so often. And that to make hot water, since you can only push so much heat from one medium to another, the delta T, the change in temp, you can only transfer heat so quickly without avoid without running into a lot of problems. The hot short burns are great; they're efficient, but they're not good at getting a lot of water into a different medium like wa- like um, like water. So that's where a less efficient burn can be more effective if the pattern of use is for a longer burn time. Um, less infrequent burning, which a wood, st- wood stove use tends to be. And then it has a lot of other values like cooking and baking and you know other, other uses in the home. Since you're in zone 6B, you don't really need to run a stove all the time. That just would be pretty ridiculous unless the building was really big or really uninsulated. Um, so that gets to be quite difficult. So in some ways, we have a lot of hot water because we're running the stove almost all the time in the dead of winter or very you know pretty much it's never getting cold except when we have a real thaw so we can get a lot of hot water so that's kind of a good problem to have for you you could burn a lot less wood but you also compromise your hot water production i would i would have a combo of wood and solar and i do on one of our buildings we have two solar panels they work great six months plus of the year for you they would work great if you have a decent solar site probably eight to ten months of the year so then your wood burning season is shorter uh, i know the combo wood solar hot water flat plate or evacuated tube panels pretty hard to beat um it is a big it is a decent upfront cost but solar is really cheap now because no one wants to do solar anymore because the sol the hot water market has become dominated by on demand because it's just really efficient um so solar systems are really cheap i just ripped one out of a home for a thousand bucks for a huge hundred and some odd gallon tank super insulated tank plus a ton of evacuated tubes the controllers everything stainless steel tubing you name it um 
So then that's not so bad, but it does take some work to set up and sometimes a bunch of carpentry and plumbing to do. Um, but I, I think it's awesome. I have my two flat plate panels. They've been up for getting on eight to nine years now and basically changed the coolant once, and that's it. Uses a tiny amount of electricity to move the coolant with a pump. Just no-brainer, tons of hot water, almost free, uh, you know, for most all summer and plus a bunch of spring and fall. For you, that'd be longer. So I think that's hard to beat. Um, as far as doing wood and hydronic as a whole, that's just more plumbing, but it, it can be done with wood in your end. I think you'd burn, be burning a lot of extra wood just to get hot water. So I would think I'd look into the solar, and I don't think that would be any you know much better with a wood stove than... It might be a little bit better than with a rocket mass heater, but either way, I just think the kind of matching of, of type of heat the amount of space heat you need is is small enough that there's just not a whole lot of hot water to make you could also just do on-demand propane hot water and then do separate wood and and it might be sensible to not have them combined in that situation simpler the better whatever you do uh good luck Okay, Ben clearly called in from the field, too. I guess the permaculture time of year for, for work is very busy right now. Uh, anyway, next up we have old Doc Bones, and he's going to talk to us about wounds and when and when not to close a wound. Well, why wouldn't you want to close a wound? Well, some really bad things that you're about to hear can happen if you close a wound when you shouldn't. Doc, what's up with that? Hey, Joe Alden, MD here, also known as Dr. Bones of the survival medicine website doomandbloom.net, where you'll find over a thousand articles, videos, and podcasts on medical preparedness. I'm also the co-author of the Book Excellence Award winner in medicine, The Survival Medicine Handbook, now in its third edition, our new book, Alton's Antibiotics and Infectious Disease, The Layman's Guide, and designer of an entire line of medical kits at store.doomandbloom.net. You know, something I haven't talked about in a while, but I talk about a lot usually is wound closure. When you have a laceration or some kind of injury that breaks the skin, well, that's your body's natural armor. And when your natural armor is breached, bacteria get a free ride to the rest of your body. Therefore, it only makes sense for you to want to close that breach to speed healing and lock out infection. Now, of course, there's controversy as to whether or not to close a wound. I mean, when and why would you choose to close a wound and what method would you use? Now, a laceration, which is basically a cut or a tear made by trauma, that can be closed either with things like staples, sutures, tapes, medical superglues, or regular superglues. After first aid, and that includes the removal of any foreign objects in the wound, controlling bleeding and cleaning things out, well, you have to make a decision. Are you going to close that wound or not? And in survival, it's pretty serious because you don't necessarily have all the high technology or strong antibiotics that might take care of an infection if it does occur. So what are you trying to accomplish by closing a wound? I mean, your goals are pretty simple. You close wounds to repair the defect in your body's armor, right? And you want to also eliminate something called dead space. And the dead space is a pocket of air or a pocket of inflammatory fluid that has maybe been colonized by bacteria. You don't want to close over that area without eliminating it so that there's no space that an infection can fester underneath a wound closure. And, of course, the bottom line is you want to promote healing. By the way, if you close a wound correctly, you probably would have less scarring, too, than you usually would see. Of course, it sounds like all wounds should be 
closed, but unfortunately, closing a wound that should be left open can do a lot more harm than good. It could possibly put your patient's life at risk. There was a young lady injured some years ago in a zipline accident, fell off the zipline, landed in a creek bed, and wound up being taken to the local emergency room where she had a large laceration identified on her thigh, and they used 22 staples to close the large incision. Unfortunately, that wound had dangerous bacteria in it, and closing the incision wound up locking that bacteria in and allowing it to go to other places in her body. It caused a serious infection spread throughout her body, and she eventually required multiple amputations. Her hands, one leg almost to the hip, and another one a little less higher up. But boy, from this you learn a really important lesson that the decision to close a wound is not just some automatic thing, but involves a number of factors. The most important consideration is whether you're dealing with a clean or a dirty wound. And most wounds you're going to encounter in an off-grid setting, a survival setting, will probably be dirty. And if you try to close a dirty wound, such as, let's say, a gunshot, a gunshot wound is usually dirty because it has bits of clothing and maybe gunpowder or other debris that goes along with it. Well, if you close that, you have sequestered bacteria and dirt into your body. And within a short period of time, that wound can become infected and starts looking red, swollen, and hot. And you might form an abscess, a ball, a pus ball, basically, and have some real trouble. The infection may spread to the bloodstream, too, after a period of time. And that's a condition known as septicemia, and that becomes life-threatening. If you leave the wound open, that's going to allow you to clean the inside frequently and observe the healing process, see if, if there are signs of infection. Keeping the wound open also allows inflammatory fluid to drain out of the body. The scar, of course, isn't as pretty, but it's the safest option, honestly, in most cases. Other considerations when deciding whether or not to close a wound are whether it's a simple laceration, basically a straight, thin cut on the skin, or whether it's some kind of avulsion. Of An avulsion is where areas of skin are torn out or there are some hanging flaps. If uh, edges of the laceration are so far apart that they can't be stitched together without causing a lot of pressure on the skin, well, the wound should be left open. Otherwise, you might just have it tear right through the skin and that would be really bad. If the wound has been open for more than eight hours, that's another reason to leave it open. Even the air has bacteria, and after eight hours, there's a really good chance that the bacteria have already colonized the injury. Now, let's say you're certain that the wound is clean. It's less than eight hours old, and it meets the other criteria. You have an idea of how it occurred, and it looks like a relatively clean setting. Now, here are some factors that would suggest that you should close that wound. And one, if you have a really long or deep laceration that doesn't look like it would heal on its own, well, that might be a reason to close it. The exception would be a puncture wound from an animal bite, because these bites are loaded with bacteria, and they should be kept open in austere settings. Having said that, in normal times, oftentimes they are closed, but remember they have antibiotics that can be given intravenously, pretty strong stuff, and other ways to deal with wounds to keep them from becoming infected. So... In a survival setting, maybe more likely to not close that animal bite wound than in any other setting. Of course, cat bites and other deep puncture wounds are almost impossible to close, really, and have a lot of bacteria. Cat bites can certainly cause infections, so you have to keep that in mind. <clears throat> now, if the wound is located over a joint, you might want to close that wound because a moving part like a knee or an elbow will constantly stress a wound that prevents it from closing in on its own.
The wound also can gape pretty openly, pretty loosely, and that suggests that a wound should be closed without undue pressure on the skin. If you're unsure, you can choose to wait about 48 to 72 hours before closing a wound to make sure that no signs of infection develop. That is called a delayed closure, and that means that some wounds can be partially closed, maybe allowing a small open space to prevent dead space from occurring or to avoid the accumulation of inflammatory fluids. So this delayed closure is something that is a pretty good idea to keep an eye on a wound for a couple of days to see whether there's going to be signs of infection occurring. So that's something that would be another factor in terms of deciding whether a wound should be closed or whether it should be allowed to heal in from below. That's a process called granulation because the tissue has its healing and it has a sort of granular sort of look to it. This is Joe Alden, MD, wishing you the best of health and good times or bad. Thanks for watching. Hey, don't forget to check out Nurse Amy's entire line of medical kits and individual supplies, plus our latest book, Alden's Antibiotics and Infectious Disease, The Layman's Guide to Available Antibacterials in Austere Settings at store.doomandbloom.net. That's store.doomandbloom.net. And be sure to follow our YouTube channel at DR Bones Nurse Amy and subscribe to our website at doomandbloom.net for lots of informative videos. And remember, the Member Support Brigade gets a discount off anything in our store. Thanks again. I told you some bad stuff can happen if you close the wound when you shouldn't. So there you go from old Doc Bones. Uh, next up, I got Gary Collins. We had him on, a, on the show this week. And he kind of, as an aside, mentioned what he calls the three-legged stool of the simple life method, uh, his philosophy on how to live. But he really didn't dig into it. So he came back to us here with a little segment on exactly what the three-legged stool is. Gary, take it away. Hey, everyone. This is Gary Collins, creator of the thesimplelifenow.com. Make sure to check out my new podcast, Your Better Life. It is available on iTunes and many other places to include my website that I just gave you. Also, I am an MSB member, so you get 10% off all of your orders and free shipping to include my very, very popular supplement line today. I talked about this on the interview with Jack. Uh, what are we doing? It's uh, Wednesday, October 23rd. But I want to go into more detail about what the three-legged stool of the simple life is. Uh, those who follow me know I have the Simple Life series, which is a series where I take people through my journey and journey of teaching people the things of living a simpler, freer life. Three-legged stool, optimal health, financial freedom by being debt-free, and life purpose. So let's go to the first one, which is the one I always start with, the most important one to get going. And that's another question I always get, where should I start? Your health. We are losing the battle terribly in this country. We are the most obese country in the world. We are the unhealthiest developed country in the world. And it's getting worse. And I, I've done this, everyone who knows, who follows me, I started with a health company. I've been into health over four decades as an athlete, as a special agent, working for the FDA, U.S. Department. I've been in health a long time. I've did it wrong for a majority. I've been doing it right for over a decade now, night and day, how I feel. The most important thing about that is most of our health problems today are self-generated by our lack of exercise and poor diet. Trust me on this one. Most of our chronic health diseases today 
are because of the poor choices we make. So with that, it's one of the hardest to change. Why I say to start with it first is because everything else becomes easier after you do that one. It falls into place. The biggest one I always talk about is, is cognitive function. You, you become, your thoughts become clearer. You think better. And by that, what it helps with is you just make better decisions. I know this firsthand. I've dealt with it with a lot of people I've worked with. We all say the same thing. The more unhealthy you are, it seems like the worst decisions you will make. You make impulse decisions, irritable arguments. So trust me on this one. All right, let's jump to financial freedom, being debt free. That's my new book, The Simple Life Guide to Being to Financial Freedom. So what I mean by that is working towards being debt free. I've been debt free for about a decade now and parts of my life I have been, um, but I've stayed true to it. Not to say that there hasn't been points where I have used debt as a leverage to, to better myself for short term. Big difference. Uh, my rule is if I can't pay it off in 12 months, I don't do it as far as leveraging, but I use being debt free as my life of freedom. You talk to anyone who has been debt-free for a decent amount of time, and we all will explain to you, your life will be completely different. There are the A lot of today's stresses literally go away. I can survive off minimum wage. No problem. Not even a struggle. I own my house. I own my car. I own my RV. I own land. I own my company. I own my books. I mean, I own everything. I own it. It gives me the freedom of not having to worry where that next paycheck's going to come from because it doesn't take much for me to survive. Now, that doesn't mean that I don't, you know, look to earn more money because I also speak of money equals freedom. The more money you have, the more for potential freedom you have. The more freedom you have, the less money it takes to maintain that level of freedom. It, it is amazing. I'm telling you. You need to work to be debt-free. And the last one, life purpose. Life purpose, I define it as something you would do even if you weren't paid to do it. Again, sounds woo-woo, you know, pie in the sky. It's not. I do my life purpose. I'm working my life purpose right now. My life purpose is to help and teach other people find a simpler life, to be happy, to find freedom, to find their own personal freedom. That's what it's all about. In this country today, we feel like we're trapped. We live in the freest country in the world. With all of our problems, everything that's going wrong in, in our lives and in this country, it is the best country out there. We inhibit ourselves and follow and go after things that we're told to instead of the things we want to. Life purpose could be as simple as being the best mother or father you can be. You know, I always give the example of you don't have to be fine. Their life purpose doesn't have to be like Elon Musk. You know, a very easy one, as I say, say you're passionate about, you know, uh, artisanal chocolate. You know, it's your passion. You love making healthy chocolate from, you know, raw ingredients, the best ingredients you can find. And everyone loves it. You don't like your job. So you start making more and more of it. You start selling it on the side. You start a side business. 
that business eventually turns into a brick and mortar business in your, in your community. People come from all over to enjoy your chocolate. They bring their kids. It becomes generational. You look forward, you look forward to going to work every day. You see the smiles on people's faces. You start an internet business from it. You start shipping it worldwide. Who knows? You know, at least nationwide. Pretty simple life purpose there, right? Pretty easy. Not that difficult. Now, getting there is difficult. Simple does not mean easy. And I talked about that in the interview today. All this takes work. It's hard work. But the payoff is, I don't know why anyone would not do it. I'm here to tell you, I, I do all three. That's where it came from. I put all this together and realized those were the three big pieces of the simple life as I teach it. So everyone, I hope that helps. Uh, I go much more, you know into it in a lot of uh, my podcast episodes I talk about it um, so yeah make sure to follow me find my books again the simple life now.com and my podcast your better life thanks again guys next up I'm about to ask a stupid question do you like cheese I mean who doesn't like cheese I like cheese most people I know like cheese some people can't eat it because they're lactose intolerant but uh Pretty much, I think either you can eat cheese, and then you like cheese, or you can't eat cheese and you wish you could. So maybe if we like cheese, and maybe if we have access to really good milk around us one way or another, maybe we'd like to make some cheese. We think making cheese is really spooky and some kind of dark art or something, but most of the uh, most of societies, uh, people made cheese for themselves in the majority of homesteads for the majority of human civilization. It's not really that hard. Nicole Sauce is going to talk to us about getting started and getting the right gear together to make your own cheese. Hello, TSP. It's Nicole Sauce here from Living Free in Tennessee with a question from Ray over on the MeWe chat. She was asking on MeWe Monday a question for me, which was, how do I get started with cheese making without buying lots of equipment? She wanted to know, actually, her question was, what equipment do I need to start making cheese? And I took it a little beyond that in this answer just because, you know, once you start making cheese, you start wanting to make more cheese, in my opinion, as long as you like cheese. And if you don't like cheese, I just think you might be a strange person. Anyway, Ray, here's the deal. The easiest cheese for you to make, and you probably do not need any special ingredients, would be farmer's cheese. So the equipment you need for farmer's cheese, I'll just go through it real quick. You need a stainless steel or some sort of coated pan. You don't want to use aluminum for this, like a pot, sorry. So like a stock pot. You need some sort of a cheesecloth or a flour sack towel or a 150 or lower count pillowcase because you're going to strain it through that. You need a colander. And you need a spoon and you need measuring cups. That's it. Here's how you make farmer's cheese. And this is for one gallon milk. First of all, never use ultra pasteurized milk to make cheese. It doesn't work. You want to get pasteurized milk. That means you're not probably going to be using organic milk because almost all commercially produced organic milks are ultra pasteurized. So you get a gallon of cow's milk and you want to have either the juice of one lemon or a quarter cup of vinegar. It can be normal, like 
white vinegar or you can use apple cider vinegar if you prefer that, whatever you like. You put the milk in your stainless steel or porcelain coated stock pot, heat it up to just before boiling. This is when the little bubbles are starting to form. And at that time, you turn the heat off, you add the juice of one lemon or a quarter cup of vinegar, and you let it sit for about 10 minutes. If you're like me, you like salt, I would add a teaspoon of salt at the same time. So you put that in, stir it, let it sit for about 10 minutes. If you let it sit for half an hour because you get distracted because your kid asked you a question, Ray, that's okay. What's happening is the milk fats are separating from the liquids, and that's what you want to have happen. From there, you coat your colander with either the flour sack towel or that 150 count thread count or lower pillowcase. Uh, by the way, you're cutting up your pillowcase in this particular scenario. I've even used an old undershirt that was clean. Okay. Like you're just straining it out. You can use a normal kitchen towel if you want. It's just that you might get lint in your cheese and that's kind of weird. So pour it through that and the liquid will come through and that's the way. And then the milk solids will stay out. Now, if you're smart, you'll keep the whey because you can use it for a lot of other things like fertilizing your plants. You can drink it if you like how it tastes. But what's happening is you're separating the solid fats out. You let that strain until it's, you know, it usually takes about 45 minutes when I do it until it's a consistency almost of cream cheese, but it won't be creamy. It'll be a little bit more grainy. And if it's not quite there, you can actually wring out more liquid. So this is where you make a choice of how much liquid you want out. If the more liquid you press out, the less creamy mouthfeel you'll have. From there, you can put it straight in the fridge and just eat it on crackers or whatever. It's sort of like a soft cheese, like think cream cheese for farmer's cheese. Or you can add garlic and other herbs and spices to it, or you can add honey those sorts of things. You can go sweet or savory with this, mix it all up and then put it in the fridge. You want to eat that up within about a week. So in answer to your question about equipment, you don't need any special equipment if you've ever made spaghetti. Okay. Now the problem is once you get that done, you're going to find that you want to make more cheeses. And so then the equipment list goes up. All of those same things, some sort of flour sack towel or cheese straining cloth, you want a stainless steel or enamel pot, a colander, a curd knife. Now, my curd knife is also just my bread cutting knife. So you can get an actual curd knife or you can just use a long knife, a perforated ladle or perforated spoon for stirring, a thermometer, the kind that's an instant read, of course, the same thing, measuring cups, and that gets you into the next level of cheese. An example of soft cheeses that you can make would be something like a chev. And to make chev, what you do is you take your milk. Again, it has to be pasteurized only, not ultra-pasteurized or raw. And you're going to, instead of adding an acid like vinegar to curdle the milk, to separate the milk fats from the whey, you're going to culture it. And so you'll use a, a mesophilic culture, which is a low temperature culture. There's mesophilic and thermophilic. Thermophilic, you heat the meat, the meat, the, the milk a little bit hotter. Okay. So mesophilic culture, you're going to heat the milk to about 86 degrees. 
86 being the maximum you want it, so 80 is fine, okay? You're going to add the mesophilic culture and you're going to stir it really well. If you do not have mesophilic culture, you can add a half cup of cultured buttermilk. It, it'll do the same thing. This is basically causing, it's, it's little bacteria that are going to eat the, the sugars in there and then poop out an acid, basically. And, and it's that acid that adds the interesting flavors of cheese as well as separates the milk fat from the whey. Then you're going to also add rennet and stir it well and set it aside for 12 to 18 hours at room temperature. By room temperature, we don't mean 55 and cold, okay? You want it to be between, you know, 68, 76 degrees, somewhere in there. What will happen at that point when you look at it, like you'll come back 12 hours later, and the way I do this is I do it in the evening and then go to bed and wake up. You will have a curd and thin layers of whey floating on top. And then you do basically the same thing you did with the farmer's cheese. You use a flour sack or pillowcase, put it in your colander and let it drain for four to six hours. If you let it drain too long, what will happen is you will have chalky chev. So you want to kind of keep an eye on it. You want to, that's why I do it like culture overnight and then drain during the day. So I can see it basically when it stops dripping, then your cheese is ready. It should have the consistency of cream cheese. Now, again, you may want to add some salt. I add about a teaspoon of salt per gallon of raw milk. I usually use raw goat's milk, but you can use non-raw milk. And then you refrigerate it, and it'll keep in the fridge for two weeks. If you want to put it in your freezer... You can do that too, and it lasts for a much, you know, like six months in the freezer. You pull it out, you let it defrost, and then serve it. So you don't really need much. Like most of the stuff on the list of equipment that you need to get started with cheese are things that you would already have around, right? Like a stainless steel stock pot or an enamel pot. If you have a big glass pot, you can use that too, but those things weigh about 40,000 pounds. Flour sack towels or pillowcases stainless steel colander, some sort of long knife that, you know, or a frosting, um, a frosting spreader makes a really good curd knife, a perforated spoon for stirring, an instant read thermometer. That's what I use for all my meats because I don't like waiting for the thing to get up to temperature, measuring cups and spoons. If you bake, you have those and, and that's it. That's all you need. So I hope this helps you get started. Ray, if you have questions, let me know. I have included some links to like some of the things like rennet and mesophilic culture. I've also added a link for the thermophilic culture in case you decide to go to the next step. For the expert counsel, this has been Nicole Sauce. If you want to know more about me, you can head on over to livingfreeintennessee.com. I've got a podcast there as well as links to my other enterprises like Holler Roast Coffee and Spark Communications Group. Okay, guys, go out, make cheese, and make it a great week. All right, so next uh, I've got a, a really – I'm going to be kind of quick with this one today, I promise. Uh, sometimes I say that and I'm not, but there's only so much to say about this. But John sent me one, and uh, he's – actually, it's Patrick. It's a John, and then it says Patrick. So it's John Patrick, sure. Uh, wondering the best way to gut and defeather a bird. Don't know if it's simple as pulling them out and dunking a bird in boiling hot water. 
Uh, I'm going to be hunting pheasant and quail. Would like to keep the entire bird, not just the breast. Was never taught this stuff when I was younger. Thanks for everything you do, Patrick. Okay, well, here's the deal. There is no real way to make plucking a bird easy without a plucker, a mechanical plucker. And um, Most of the time, hunters don't shoot enough animals that they really uh, want to take the time to do this. You can pluck pheasant and quail both without scalding if you want to. Scalding will definitely make it easier. But it's... It's simple as you want to heat your water to about 140, 145 degrees, dip your bird and start pulling feathers. And when you go to start pulling, you want to watch. And if you're, when you're pulling, if you're, if you're, you think you're at risk of, of, of tearing the skin, you might want to scald a little longer. If you scald too hot, though, you can cook the skin and make it really easy to tear. So, I've never been big when it comes to doing this. Like, this was something, I don't do a lot of this anymore. Um, I don't do a lot of bird hunting anymore. And if I process something on farm, I do kind of do the de-breast thing. And I'm going to give you some shortcuts as well where you don't have to necessarily do one or the other. You can do a hybrid here in just a second. But I tend to just de-breast and pull out legs and thighs is what I tend to do now with just about everything. If I want skin on, I take it to a processor where they have a proper scalder and a proper plucker, and they do it at a commercial level. But when I was a kid, we shot a lot of pheasants. We shot a lot of rough grouse. I mean, grouse was a, a mainstay, and we shot a lot of ducks. And all I did was take Grandma's big pot and put it on the stove and heat it up till it was steaming really good. That was kind of my, like, it's steaming. Shut the heat off and start dunking. And start pulling. And when you get it, plucked about as best that you can go ahead and then you know cut off your feet remove your entrails etc i'm going to tell you that it's very hard for me on something the size of a pheasant or a quail to be bothered with plucking the the wing if i am going to do that i'm not going to do it on a quail it's just not worth it but if i'm going to if i'm going to leave the wing on a pheasant what i'm going to do is i'm going to take a pair of snips and I'm going to take the second and third joint of the wing off and just throw it away. It's just not worth it. There's not enough meat on there. That little first drumette on a pheasant has some meat. I'll leave that, and I'll pluck that. And then gut. A lot of times in the field, you're going to feel the need, maybe because of the situation, to gut the bird before you pluck it. All I'm going to say is it's okay, but it makes plucking harder. If you don't need to gut, gut after you pluck. And then it's simply, like, I can't describe this in an audio. You can go online and take a look on YouTube how to do it. Kind of cut around the butt so you don't cut into the intestines. Open up the cavity, reach in, and pull everything out. I mean, that, that's, that's all there is to it. When it comes to quail, I'm big on what I call the modified dove cleaning technique. So you said you don't want to just use the breast. I agree. But this is how I would clean a quail. I break the wings off. And I have a dove video, an old, old video of me cleaning doves, and I'll, I'll link to it in the show notes. You can look at it it's the same way except the second part. So you break the wings off, get them out of the way, and you pull some of the feathers off of the breast, kind of to make an open area where you can see what you're doing. And there's the point of the breast. And you can push your thumb in there, you'll feel the point of the breast. When you think of how a chicken breast or any bird's breast is shaped, it looks almost like a heart. It comes down to a point. You grab that point, you grab the butt, and you pull. And it just tears right open. You pull the skin off, 
and yank the breast out. Now, this is where you don't want to be wasteful, right? You want those the, the thigh and the leg. You reach in, and I don't do this in a dove video, but I've done it with quail, you know, domestic quail. If you can do it with domestic quail, you can do it with wild quail. You reach in and just find the joint where the thigh goes into the hip socket and push down, and it'll pop right out. If it doesn't pop out, if it's an older bird or a bigger bird you're doing this with, get a knife and cut any connective tissue you need, but leave the thigh muscle whole. Grab the thigh and start pulling and hold the leg skin and pull the leg skin until you get down to where the foot. Now you've got basically a leg quarter, a drum and a thigh. Cut that off with a knife or a pair of snips, pull it out. Now you've got skinless, yes, but you've got all the breast meat, all the thigh meat, and all the leg meat from a quail, and you then you can do that with a pheasant too. You can do the exact same thing with a pheasant. You'll need to use your knife more, but you can basically debreast a pheasant the same way. And it doesn't have to just be cutting the breast cutlets off and leaving everything else whole. You can open it up and take that out. With a pheasant, I'm more inclined to either pluck the whole bird or to skin the whole bird because you've got a pretty good carcass to make a really great bone stock with. You know, That's basically a small chicken. So you can do that as well. Now, what if you say, but I do want some skin for cooking and all. The best part of a pheasant especially to cook with the skin on, is the breast. Now, you can do what I'm about to give you with geese, ducks, pheasants, about any bird that you want to do a debreasting on. The easiest part to pluck is the breast. You can generally, most of these birds, you can pluck the breast clean without actually scalding, especially if as soon as you kill the bird and it's still warm, you start plucking. You completely pluck the breast, so you're looking at a naked breast, right? You're looking at a skin-on breast, Then take your knife and debone your two breast cutlets with the skin on them. Now you've got skin on breast. This is great for ducks and geese especially. Because now we can cook that duck breast with crispy skin or the goose breast with the that's crispy skin. You do that with a goose, cut the, then cut the breast into medallions, and then wrap that with bacon and cook it like tenderloin on the grill with the goose skin on it. Oh, my God. Quail, you could do the same thing. I just don't have the energy. If I was going to be shooting a lot of quail or processing a lot of quail and I wanted them plucked, I'd get a little plucker. Now, when you pluck a bird whole, you're inevitably going to have some small feathers that are really difficult to get off. Um, what we used to do is take a pa the old sp paper straws, like I guess they're coming back because they kill turtles if they're plastic or something. Because, like, yeah, I drink my plastic cup Starbucks with my plastic straw, and I throw the plastic cup away, and I run down to the ocean and throw the straw right into a turtle but the old waxed paper straws if you like them they kind of burn a long time we would use those and maybe even dip them in a little wax and we would use those to burn the feathers off you can use a, a small torch or something like that uh, to burn those feathers off as well just you want to keep it moving and that's a good way to get away you, you know your your hair feathers it doesn't get rid of pin feathers you got if you really want to get every pin feather you got to go in there with like forceps or something but if you want to get some of the hair feathers off you can just burn that off That's kind of the best I can do for you. But I, I find that the hybrid approach gives you most of what you want for the least amount of work, which is pluck the breast, debone the breast cutlets, yank out the, the thighs and the legs without the skin. Um, I just find it to be too much work to pluck the thighs and the legs on an ongoing basis, especially with things like ducks and geese. Plucking ducks and geese is really hard. You have to get your scalding temperature a lot higher to get a good pluck on them. 
um, especially those areas. But the, again, the breast, it's really, really fast. You might want to try that. And if you look up you know, some cleaning videos on YouTube, you'll probably find some people doing it that way. Next time I ever have a bird that I'm going to do that way, I'll do a video of it. But it's, I mean, it can't be more simple. Just think of how you do it now. You said no one taught you this, but obviously you're doing something. So what you're probably doing is you're cutting the skin, pulling the skin out, and then cutting the two breast cutlets out. Just yank the feathers off and do the same thing and leave the skin on. And you get two beautiful skin-on breast cutlets. And you could do it fast. The number one way to make that work, shoot that bird as soon as it's dropped, as soon as it's dead, um, pluck the breast. Even if you're not going to clean it, even if you're going to throw it in your game bag, pluck the breast, leave the feathers in the field, and then de-breast it later on if, you're, if you want to keep moving. There you go, John Patrick whichever one you really are. I hope that helps you, man. Uh, I bet one of those is a middle name. Anyway, with that, we've wrapped up another episode. I want to remind you of two big ways you can support this show. One, become a member. If you listen to the show and it helps you out and you think we're worth 20 cents an episode, become a member. Just go to the survivalpodcast.com. Clip on con. <laughs> I am not a con man, I, I swear. A, a, go to the survivalpodcast.com. Click on subscribe. Look at all the great benefits you get that more than put the money back in your pocket. Click join, sign up, take advantage of the discounts, get all the other perks, and support the show that you listen to. That's all you got to do if you want to support us. The other way, do your online shopping at tspaz.com. If you shop through tspaz, no matter what you buy, you help support us as long as you start there. Um, today I've got for you, though, I think this is my product find of the year. I really do. I think this is going to change people's dietary habits. Uh, this is such a simple thing, but my God, is it good. It comes from a company called Wild Planet, and these are mackerel fillets. Don't wince if you don't like sardines. Okay, Give me a second here. Mackerel fillets in organic extra virgin olive oil. This is Atlantic mackerel. This isn't king mackerel or something like that. These fish, like at their biggest, are about a pound and a half. That means they're low in the food chain. They are mercury safe. I'm not saying have, everything from the ocean has some mercury in it. But this is something you can eat multiple times a week, and you're not going to kill yourself mercury poisoning. Unlike a lot of things like king mackerel and, and like big, big tuna and stuff like that have tons of mercury in them. You have to really be careful how much of it you eat. This is safe. It is huge in omega-3s. But here's the thing. If it tastes like ass, it doesn't matter, does it? Okay. If you eat tuna from a can at all, you're going to think you died in, and you like that at all. When you try this, you're going to think you went to, you died and went to canned tuna heaven. I mean, it is, I don't want to compare it to tuna, but it is the, if you've not had it, it's the only thing I can compare it to. If you've ever had really expensive jarred tuna that comes from like Italy, where the tuna, instead of being in a can and it smells like cat food, you open up, it's beautiful, it's firm texture, it's in very, very high-end olive oil, and it comes in a jar. This comes in a can, it's cheap, but it's like that. It is firm. The m number one problem I have, even though I use canned fish, is it is the texture. Think about canning. It's a very high temperature for a long time to make it safe. This stuff is firm. I mean, you could bread it and fry it if you wanted to. I wouldn't do it, but you could. It is not real oily other than it's in olive oil. So it's got that going on. It's it's just clean tasting. My I would eat more. So I love the uh, Matisse Gallego sardines. I love sardines. I would eat a lot more sardines, but every time I open a can of sardines, my wife like, what the smell? And it's, like, ah, it's not worth it. These, they, they smell less 
of that fish smell than a can of tuna does. They're white. They are skinless. They are boneless. They are beautiful. The olive oil in them, again, extra virgin organic olive oil. The ingredients is skinless mackerel, or extra virgin olive oil, sea salt, full stop, nothing else. I have tried these uh, a couple different ways. I put a picture in the review that I posted for you today of a salad I made. I took some organic greens, I took some feta cheese, some smoked olives, and I just crumbled this stuff on top of a few other things. You can look at it and see everything that's there. It was amazing. It was so good. I wanted, The next day I made something different because I didn't want to get like in a wheel where you eat the same thing every day, but I wanted to just make the same thing again. The salad I made cost me about four to five bucks. I bet you if you put that on a yuppie restaurant menu and touted the, the sustainability and the health benefits of wild mackerel, that you could sell that salad for 18 bucks and no yuppies would complain. And the, the oil in the can with the fish made a perfect dressing for the salad. I put avocados in it. It was, I mean, it was freaking awesome. You've got to try this stuff. And then a couple days later, I, 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 I mentioned this, but I don't, I'm not kind of touting this one today. I was checking out Wild Planet, so I also got some of their anchovies, their white anchovies in olive oil. And so I was like, I wonder how they are. So I picked up a can of each of them. And I'm sitting there, and I'm like, yeah, I'll try something today. And what I had done is I'd gone out to the, the aviary, and I got a New Mexico chili, a uh, jalapeno chili pepper, and a green uh, bell pepper. And I brought them in. I said, today, well, I don't know what I'm doing for lunch, but those three peppers are going to be the base of it. So then I'm like, I open my drawer, and I look, and the anchovies are there looking back at me. And I pop them open. And this is after the mackerel experience, and I'm like, I wonder, right? Are these anchovies going to be all firm and white? No, they were skin on, bone in, and they tasted like the best little sardines I've ever eaten in my life. Is what they, they're, they're better than the Matisse Gallego sardines. But they tasted like a sardine. Okay, but I've opened up a can of sardine-smelling fish. I'm committed. This has to be gone before Dorothy gets home, right? For my life to be happy, I have to be gone, rinsed out, sink cleaned out, no smell, gone. So... Um, I decided I'm going to make a soup. So I cooked down the peppers. I added some tomatoes. I ended up using some pine nuts. I ended up using some grass-fed Polish sausage. I got sardines and Polish sausage. I ended up using some ginger and some liquid aminos and adding some kind of like Asian, like this was like the most ethnically confused thing in the world. And then I'm tasting it on the salt and pepper. That's about right. You need something. Let's go to Maryland, man. Grab the, the Old Bay seasoning. Throw about a, a half a teaspoon, a quarter teaspoon of Old Bay in this. Use the chicken bone stock, some water to make the broth. Uh, then I'm like, hey, let's, let's Italian the thing up a little bit. Let's totally go nuts with it. So in go the pine nuts, some half cherry tomatoes, and some spinach. And wow, this, this could be better. The mackerel would have been better in it than the anchovies. The sausage would have been really great if it was like a habanero or an andouille sausage, something like that. Um, but that was good. So both of the recipes for the salad and the soup are in this, and you could use the mackerel in either one. I'm telling you there's a lot to be done with this mackerel. You guys that like sushi, this is great to make your sushi rolls. What if you like sushi, but you want to be low carb? Well, make a seaweed roll, use some avocado, right, and some nori seaweed wrap, with this, and maybe like, I don't know, maybe some cucumber, uh, maybe a little bit of flying fish roe, maybe a couple garlic chives, and make a roll. I mean, yeah. This is, if you can't tell them a little, like, I know it's a stupid thing. It's canned fish. 
I'm excited. The, the, the batch I just got in, the expiration date on them is in March 18th, 2023. The number one thing that we struggle with, with eat what you store and store what you eat, it's preppers, because this is why we go to expensive number 10 cans and all, is what? Meat and fat. Like vegetables are easy. Grains are easy. Beans and rice are easy. To store high-quality fat long-term is a challenge as a prepper. With this, you've got this incredible olive oil, this incredible omega-3 fat from the fish, a great protein source. Everything's wild and organic. And how much is it? Three bucks a can. Three, and one can's like a perfect lunch size. Three bucks a can. The soup I made, you could cut it in half as a side and make two servings. Or you could use one, and I ate the whole bowl as a meal. I mean, this is one of the best finds. There's one downside if you're going to buy it on Amazon through T-Spaz. Uh, I cannot find it individual can. It's a 12-pack. So you, I bet you if you find it at a market, it will cost less to buy it on Amazon with free shipping at $3 a can. But you might want to, if you're not sure, see if like one of the grocery stores around you carries it and get one can of them. But make sure you get the right ones. Check the, check the review because Wild Planet does a lot of fish. You're looking for the wild, skinless, boneless mackerel fillets in extra virgin olive oil. That's what you're looking for. Just, I'm telling you, if you, if you like tuna at all, at all, if you can, if you can eat tuna, if you're okay with eating it, you're going to like this. I, I don't want to compare it to tuna, but the way I put it in my review is, if you have ever had rabbit and you've had chicken and you tell people rabbit tastes like chicken, but it doesn't taste like chicken, but that's the only thing you can use to explain it, that's how it is. This tastes like tuna, the really good, high-end, expensive tuna, the way chicken and rabbit taste similar. The rabbit's better. It has, it has better flavor. It has better texture. It's better. But if you eat chicken, you'll eat rabbit unless you have a problem eating rabbits, right? That's what this is. Give it a shot. Yeah, I know I went on and on. I'm sorry. I'm excited, guys. Find of the year for products, man, I'm telling you. With that, let's talk about our song of the day today. Song of the day today is called Take the Journey by Molly Tuttle. Now, Molly Tuttle is someone I really hadn't heard of. Uh, she was with a group called the Goodbye Girls for a while. She's really young. I think she's like 25 or 26. She actually went solo, and she started her, her new kind of career as a solo artist with a crowdfunding campaign on, like, Indiegogo or something like that. This song, yeah, it's called Take the Journey. And the point of this song is there's all this stuff in our lives that, like, is hard, that's part of the life we have to live. It goes along with the good. The good and the bad go together. Life's going to go on whether you do or not. Take the journey. Step out. Make things happen. Also, this gal, if you're familiar with the claw hammer uh, guitar technique, one of the most amazing people I've seen play a guitar. Good voice, incredible talent, and this song really shows off her talent because it's really just her and her guitar. So, hey, it's weekend time, right? We are wrapping up another week right now. The weekend is ahead of you. For this weekend... Take the journey. With that, it's been Jack Spearco with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Cold, cold nights lead to cold.
Journey.